We, um, when we're planning a sermon series, there's a lot of things that go into that. Uh, a lot of factors, a lot of prayer, a lot of discussion. One of the things that doesn't go into it is when we plan it out, what topics fall on what day? We don't give a lot of thought to that, uh, which is pretty amazing because often after we preach, people will come up to us and say, how did you know to preach on that subject on this day? I needed that so desperately. Well, it turns out God loves us, right? He takes care of that. He's got that. He kind of works that out. And so we don't put a ton of thought into it. And so when uh, a few months ago, we started planning this series on doubts, disagreements, and dilemmas in Christianity. And Andy asked me to preach on how to disagree with other Christians. I thought, well, that could be interesting, right? Like that could get a little spicy. Uh, We might leave a little offended, right? So I started to think about it and get a little excited. So I went to my calendar. And it was May 14th, right? So May 14th, how to disagree with other Christians on Mother's Day, right? (laughs) I almost entitled the sermon, How to Fight Within the Family, just to see if I could ruin all of our days as we go on lunches and hikes and celebrate Mother's Day uh, together. And so uh, we didn't know it was going to fall on this day, but it's a timely word for us. So go ahead and open up to Romans 14. That's where we'll spend our time together. And as you're turning there, let me just catch you up on some context of Romans. We're jumping right in the middle. Romans is really a two-part book. Chapters 1 through 11 focus mainly on our relationship with God. Namely, how do we get a relationship with God? How are we saved through grace, by faith, in Jesus? How, are we, how do we relate to God? Chapters 1 through 11. And then chapters 12 through 16 say, what's our relationship with other people? In light of the gospel of grace, not how do we relate to God, but how do we relate to each other? And Paul lays out a variety of different areas where we relate to one another. We just prayed for one out of Romans 13 about civil government and how we relate to it. But in Romans 14, here's what we have. We learn how to relate to one another in the church. Namely, when we disagree in the church, how are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to disagree with each other? And so Romans 14, starting in verse 1, let's read it together. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Skip down to verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Verse 20. Do not then, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. So when it comes to disagreeing with other Christians, three questions I want to ask together this morning. What should we disagree about? How should we disagree? And why does it matter? 
What should we disagree about? How should we disagree? And why does it matter? So first of all, what should we disagree about? The first thing uh, I want you to notice is something that's sort of implied in this passage, and it's this. Disagreements in the church are normal and expected. We shouldn't get saved and come into the church and assume we're all just going to get along and we're going to agree on everything and we're never going to have any disagreement, any conflict, any fights. Because disagreement in any relationship uh, is expected, right? I remember when I got married. Um, We didn't have much disagreement in dating and then we went on our honeymoon. We had no disagreement on our honeymoon and I thought, this is going to be easy. Everyone who said marriage is hard had no idea. First day, we got home from our honeymoon. First day, we sat down to make a grocery list. And this is the moment that I learned there are two ways to make a grocery list, the wrong way and the right way, right? (laughs) And all of a sudden, I've been married for eight days, and I'm fighting with my wife on how to make a grocery list. What's the correct order to do it? Disagreement is inevitable in relationship, right? Two sinners come together. There's going to be disagreement, and no less true in the church. Just because we know Jesus doesn't mean it doesn't exist here. And so the question is not, should we disagree? The question is, what should we disagree about? What's worth disagreeing over? What's worth fighting about and what's not? And so you've got at least three points of disagreement in this passage. First of all, there's a disagreement in the Roman church over what to eat. So some people in the Roman church think it's okay to eat meat, and other people in the Roman church do not think it's okay to eat meat. So verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And all the keto people said, amen, right? <laughs> if you're a vegetarian, it's in the Bible. We can't, you know, this, that's on you if you're offended by that. And so you got this first issue of what to eat. Some people who think it's okay to eat meat and the Jewish Christians likely who are still trying to follow Old Testament laws and eat what's clean. And so uh, not eating some meat that potentially was sacrificed to idols. A second issue is over holy days. Some people in the church think that they should worship on Saturday. Some people think they should worship on Sunday. Some people think they should still follow Passover. Some people don't. And so there's disagreement over holy days. And then thirdly in verse 21, There's some disagreement about drinking alcohol, whether it's okay for Christians to drink wine or not. And so Paul's writing them about how to handle their disagreements, and he starts this way. Look at verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but here's the phrase, but not to quarrel over opinions. That word opinions could be translated disputable matters, issues that God has not spoken clearly about in his word. He hasn't forbidden it or commanded it. So they're not worth fighting over. They're definitely not worth dividing over. Paul calls them opinions. And so here's what's happened. These people, some of them Gentile, some of them Jewish, different family backgrounds, different upbringings, different parenting styles, uh, different history, all come into one church together. And they're trying to figure out what's worth disagreeing about, what's worth fighting about, where do uh, our preferences end, and things that we need to stand on, issues that we need to take a stand on begin. Where do we draw the lines? And Paul tells them, all these things that y'all are arguing about, these three issues, are really opinions. You shouldn't be dividing over them. You shouldn't be fighting over them. But I just wanted to say two things really quickly that Paul is not saying. First of all, he's not saying that there should be uniformity in the church. Paul's not saying, hey, Christians should all think the same way, believe exactly the same way, dress the same way, look the same way. There should be uniformity in the church, right? He's not calling for uniformity, but he is calling for unity. He's saying that we're going to disagree But the question is, what do we disagree about? Paul's also not saying that there's nothing worth dividing over. We know from Paul's other letters that he says, hey, if there's a false teacher in your midst, get them out of the church. If there's people who are excusing sin and not repentant over it, divide from them. So there's things worth dividing over. Paul's not saying that there aren't. And so the question is, how do we draw the lines? What's worth fighting over and potentially dividing over? Let me give you three levels 
of disagreements in the church. And here's what you have to figure out. Things in your mind, issues in the church and in culture and in the world and all sorts of categories, which one of these levels of disagreement does it fall into? The first one is absolutes. Absolutes are things that are essential for salvation, core beliefs of the faith. Things like the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, faith in Christ alone for salvation. If you disagree here, you're in different faiths, right? These are different religions. Second category, convictions. Things that true Christians can disagree on, but that create significant boundaries. Things like inerrancy of the Bible, reformed theology, views on gender and marriage, mode of baptism. These are things where you say, hey, I'm convicted about this from Scripture, but you can believe differently than me and still be a Christian. We might go to other churches, but it's just a conviction. It's not an absolute. It's not something you have to believe to be saved. And then third category, opinions. Less clear issues that are not worth dividing over. Non-essentials, debatable things, preferences, and opinions. I once heard it described this way. It's helpful to me. Disagreements in the church and, and how we divide them into categories can be thought about like national and state borders. So you think about when you travel internationally, that's a serious thing, right? Like you got to get a passport. Uh, you have to, I'm losing things you have to do. You got to do a lot to travel internationally. Just look at me and say yes, right? There's a lot. They ask you questions. If you answer the questions wrong, they take you into a back room and you're never seen again, right? Like this is... <laughs> I once, I was like 13 and we were traveling, traveling internationally with my family and they found a pair of fingernail scissors in my bag. Okay, I'm 13. They took me into a room separate from my parents and were like, what were you thinking about doing with these fingernail scissors? And it's like, what are the options? How many things can you do with fingernail scissors, right? It's a serious thing to travel internationally. State borders are less serious, right? You can drive from South Carolina to Georgia and nobody stops you. Nobody says, why are you crossing this border? And then you can just be at home in South Carolina, if you're from here, or whatever state you're from. And, and you have the same laws, right? So you, you think about that within Christianity. National borders, with outside, if you go outside national borders, it's a serious thing. You're crossing from one faith to another. But if you cross within our nation from one state to another, you're going to a place where they might have slightly different laws and they might govern in a slightly different way, but you're still in the nation, right? Or you could be here with your tribe, not another state, there might be another denomination where you think similarly and are governed similarly and have similar laws and follow similar ways of doing things. And so we have to figure out where to draw these boundaries. And here's the big idea. Not every issue falls in the same category. So where do you draw the lines? Some things are obvious, but some things are unclear. Here's four questions to consider. Number one, how clear is the Bible? So if the Bible is clear, we go with the Bible, right? We follow it. We obey it. We listen to it. But if the Bible is less clear, that tells us something about where we should put, the, put an issue in a category. Secondly, is the gospel at stake? Is the gospel at stake? Does the good news of the gospel rise or fall based on this issue? Third question, how often does it show up in scripture? What weight do the biblical authors give to the topic? And number four, how has the church thought about it throughout history? This is probably one we don't lean on enough, but if an issue has not been agreed to disagree in the whole history of the church, it's probably not agreed to disagree for us, right? And so we weigh that with other questions. And there's two ways to go wrong. We'll close out this point this way. There's two ways to go wrong when we're dividing up issues within the church and trying to figure out where they fit. It's liberalism and legalism. Liberalism is this. We treat absolutes like opinions and we fight for nothing. Legalism is we treat opinions like absolutes and we fight over everything. All right, so you don't have to answer out loud. You can if you want to, especially if you're trying to prove a point to someone beside you. That was a joke. Don't do that. Where do you think Mitchell Road falls? Liberalism or legalism? I think probably a little more on the legalistic side, right? 
Our issue is that we have trouble not letting our opinions move too high up the chain and holding people to standards that the Bible doesn't necessarily hold them to. Can you have an opinion? Yes. We just learn to hold it with the right importance. But here's the problem. The more we age and the further we go in Christianity, we tend not to like our opinions less, but more. We tend to get more dug in and more dogmatic over time. And so here's what I think we have to learn together. Spiritual maturity is not just developing strong beliefs. It's learning to show restraint in the weight we give those beliefs. So it's not necessarily spiritually mature just to get firmer into your beliefs. Christian maturity looks like, what sort of weight do I give to this issue? Where does it fall in the paradigm? Secondly, how should we disagree? How should we disagree? Once we draw the, white, the right lines, how do we disagree about them? Let me show you just a couple of things we learned from Romans 14. Number one, we treat other people as people in process as opposed to finished products. We treat each other as, as people in process as opposed to finished products. So Paul divides uh, throughout Romans 14 the people into two camps. He says there's the weak and there's the strong. The weak are the ones who still think uh, you can't eat the meat and you need to follow the holy days and you can't drink alcohol. Here's why that's interesting. If you met the weak person, you would probably think they were the strong because they look the most committed to Jesus. They look the most serious about obedience. They're trying their best to follow him and they do it really, really diligently. But Paul ultimately says that person's weak and the reason is this, that deep inside their soul, they still think that God being pleased with them still rises or falls on their obedience. That in the end, they've still got to keep up some obedience to stay in God's good graces. And so Paul says, they're weak in the faith. They're the weak ones. Here's, what, here's what's really fascinating. Paul clearly takes a position. He's saying the weak in this instance are wrong, right? They're wrong. And the strong are right. He says that later in the passage. But what he doesn't do is say, hey, weak people, figure it out. Pull it together. We know the gospel. Just believe it, right? Strong people, well done. Hold it over the weak people's heads. He doesn't do that. That was supposed to be funny, but it turns out somebody thought it was funny. If you know that person, you're in trouble this afternoon. He teaches them how to live together how to disagree with each other. So here's what Paul understands. Both sides have been welcomed by God. Look at verse three. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Here's what Paul understands. God has welcomed both the weak and the strong into his family, but they come from different upbringings. They're adopted from different families. The Jewish Christians grew up one way. The Gentile Christians grew up another way. And he says to both groups, hey, because we're coming in at different levels, we're gonna show grace to each other. Strong people don't look down on the weak when they can't quite grasp the gospel and they still think they have to earn it. Weak people don't judge the strong when they get a little too loose with their freedom and they're pushing it right to the line, right? No, learn to disagree and live together because none of you are finished products. You're still a work in progress. And so here's what I just want to say to us. Can we just increasingly become a church like that? Where people don't walk in the doors and think, I have to have it all figured out to belong here. I can't have any questions or any doubts. These people look like they've got it all figured out. I don't know if I have a place here. If you're new, we want you to know that Christ has welcomed you, and so we welcome you. We are works in progress, and so are you. And so what we want to do is for years and years and years, sit under God's word together. And Jesus told us that the Spirit will lead us into all truth. And so let's pursue truth together. We don't have to be finished products. You can still have questions and doubts. You can still say, I don't agree with everything they say there. And you can still belong because Christ has welcomed you. 
And so we're all works in progress. Um, let me just uh, pull out these statistics for you. I read a, a study last week, and here's what it said. From 2015 to 2022, they gave people in 2015 and people in 2022, so seven years difference. A lot happened in those seven years. Um, and statement number one was this. How would you respond to this? My ideas are usually better than other people's ideas. Okay? 20% more people agree with that statement in 2022 than they did in 2015. Here's another statement. When I'm really confident in a belief, there is very little chance that belief is wrong. 25% more people in seven years would agree with that statement. When I'm really confident in a belief, there's very little chance that belief is wrong. 70% of us would say that. I had lunch with an um, old youth group kid last week, and we were kind of reflecting on when they were in high school, and he actually said to me, you know, Neil, I feel like I can say this to you now, a lot of the stuff you told us in high school, I didn't really agree with. And you, you know what I thought? A lot of the stuff that I told you in high school, I don't agree with anymore. <laughs> because we change, right? We learn. Think about yourself 10 years ago, if you can go back there, or longer if you need to. Isn't it slightly embarrassing the way you acted, the way you treated people, the opinions you held, the things you did, the things you stood for? It's a little embarrassing, right? What do you think you're going to think 10 years from now? We're works in progress. We're figuring this out together. And so we learn to live together and love each other. Number two, we learn to be slow to speak, and sometimes we don't speak at all. I think this is really interesting. Look at um, verse 14. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So Paul, it takes all the way to verse 14, but Paul finally gives his opinion on the matter, and then guess what? He never talks about it again. He doesn't feel like he has to say what he thinks. He doesn't feel like he has to drive it home. He's just trying to teach them how to disagree together. And it's a beautiful silence because he's seeking the unity of the church, not the division. And so here's just very quickly what I wanna say. Sometimes we have to be, uh, learn to be slower to speak and sometimes we have to know when it's appropriate for the sake of Christ not to speak at all. That's a hard skill to learn, right? just to be silent and not always have to offer our opinion. But what we need in our world and in our churches, right, is less hot takes, way less. And sometimes just silence for the sake of unity. And lastly, we welcome whoever God has welcomed. We welcome whoever God has welcomed. Romans 15, seven, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So this, uh, this discussion that Paul is having about unity in the church continues into chapter 15 and he kind of ends it with that statement. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. You know that phrase, Christ has welcomed you. That's basically the gospel in four words. That word welcome you means to take to oneself. And the idea is Jesus doesn't just tolerate you. He didn't save you, but now he rolls his eyes whenever he thinks about you. He didn't decide to love you, but now he keeps his distance from you. No, he welcomes you. He brings you in. He embraces you. That's the gospel. And that informs us how we treat other people. Uh, one danger in a church our size is this. It's possible when we disagree with someone not to shout them down, not to hate them, but just keep our distance, right? Just keep them at an arm's length, run in different circles. That's the danger. But it's anti-gospel. Because the gospel doesn't say, tolerate one another as Christ has tolerated you coexist with one another as, as Christ has coexisted with you. No, it says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And so we embrace each other, even in the midst of our difficulties and bring each other close. And then last point, very quickly, what's at stake? What's at stake? Um, it's no secret that our culture is not great at disagreeing, right? We're not good at talking about issues 
the virtues of our day are winning the argument, villainizing the opponent, polarizing with each other, crushing people, and winning beyond a shadow of a doubt, right? That's the virtues. And that might, you might hear that and think, man, our country is headed to a bad place. But let me encourage you to not let that be your reaction. Let your reaction instead be this. We live in a moment where the gospel can shine brighter than ever. Because we can show the world what it looks like to disagree with one another well. We have that opportunity. And it's an incredible one. Because here's the reality. If the world looks at us and sees that we don't disagree with each other any differently than everyone else, there is no reason to believe the gospel. Because what real life cash value does it have if Christians can't even get along? It makes no difference. And so what's at stake? The very gospel is at stake. Let me give you a great um, story from church history on some guys who disagreed. This was George Whitfield and John Wesley, 18th century revivalist preachers. These were celebrity pastors before they were celebrity pastors. Um, this is irrelevant to the story. I just think it's fascinating. Uh, George Whitfield would preach to tens of thousands of people with no microphone. Isn't that amazing? Okay, anyways. So uh, these guys were like the, the top of the Christian world in the 18th century. But they disagreed on some really important issues, namely predestination and sanctification, two pre pretty key things in Christianity. And all the people that followed them wanted them to just crush the other person, right? Just lay them out. Let's win the argument. Let's, you know, take one for the team. But these guys uh, became friends and refused, even though they intensely disagreed, refused to publicly go after each other for the sake of the gospel. Listen to what George Whitfield said in a letter to John Wesley. The doctrine of election and the final perseverance of those who are truly in Christ, I am 10,000 times more convinced of, if possible, than when I saw you last. You think otherwise. Why then should we dispute? There's no probability of convincing. Will it not in the end destroy brotherly love and insensibly take us from cordial union and sweetness of soul, which I pray God may always subsist between us? How glad would the enemies of the Lord be to see us divided? How many would rejoice? Should I join and make a party against you? And in one word, how would the cause of our common master in every way suffer by our raging disputes about particular points of doctrines? Honored sir, let us offer salvation freely to all by the blood of Jesus and whatever light God has communicated to us, let us freely communicate to others. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, these are not minor issues, but they learn to disagree for the sake of the gospel so much so that Whitley, or Whitfield asked John Wesley to preach his funeral. And the day before his funeral, one of John Wesley's uh, people came to him and said, do you think George Whitfield is in heaven? Here's the answer. She said, dear Mr. Wesley, may I ask you a question? Yes, of course, madam, by all means. But I'm very, very afraid, Mr. Wesley, what the answer might be. Let me hear your question, you'll know my reply. And after a little hesitation, she inquired, Mr. Wesley, do you expect to see dear Mr. Whitfield in heaven? After a lengthy pause followed, after which John Wesley replied with great seriousness, no madam. His inquirer at once exclaimed, I was afraid you would say that. To which John Wesley added with intense earnestness, do not misunderstand me, madam. George Whitfield was so bright a star in the firmament of God's glory and will stand so near the throne that one like me, who am less than the least, will never catch a glimpse of him. <laughs> That's the beauty of the gospel that we can display for the world to see. That we disagree, but we do it in such a way that the gospel shines brightly and you know, it's not very hard right now. It's just not. There was a time in the history of the church where you needed advanced classes on evangelism and you better be sharp on your apologetic questions. You know what it is now? Just don't be a jerk. Just don't walk around angry all the time. Just don't look for people to crush and step on who you disagree with. 
Jesus tells us that the world will know that we're his disciples by the way we love each other. Maybe the great way we love each other in our day, the final apologetic for our day, is that we can disagree with each other in love and show the world that the gospel really is beautiful. Last quote, we'll pray. D.A. Carson says, Ideally, the church is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and they owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love each other for Jesus' sake. And so, Father, we want to be a church. Order of worship, uh, at the very bottom, there is a prayer goal for the week. So this year, as a church, we're exploring prayer together. And one of the ways we're doing that is uh, by having something we're praying for as a body every week. And this week, we're praying for those in Greenville making decisions that impact our county, surrounding areas of the upstate, and we're praying for our leaders at all levels of government in South Carolina. So that's based on Romans 13. If you uh, want to take your bulletin and put it somewhere where you're going to remember to do that or take a picture of it, if you know there's no way you're going to remember where this bulletin is less than 30 seconds from now or whatever it takes, write it on your body. We want to be praying this together. Uh, so let me do that for us now, and then we'll join our hearts throughout the week. Father, we... Um, we live in this world as people under authority. That's how you've designed it. That's how you've created us. That's how you've created this world. And so as Christians who believe the gospel, we want to learn how to live that out in our lives. We want to learn what it looks like to submit to our authority, to honor them, to pray for them. We want to be Christians who don't just care about what happens inside these walls, but care about what happens outside of these walls and all of the implications that people uh, in government have on that. And so we pray for them. We pray for our mayor, for our city council, pray for our representatives and for our senators and people at levels of government all around us. God, we pray for wisdom for them. We pray for godly leadership in their posts, that they would see they are also people under authority, that they lead with a God who has created this world and has created them to do it justly and fairly and with wisdom, and so help them. We pray for our leaders who don't know Christ, that they would be converted. We pray for every leader that they would seek the justice and the reform and the welfare of our city, that they would lead fairly and with equity and with care. And so help them, God, and help us as we submit to them and as they lead us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When we um, plan out a sermon series, there's a lot of things that go into that. We try to think about it and make good decisions and, and think about what the church needs. But one thing we don't consider when we plan it out is what topics or what passages fall on a certain day. Uh, so people will come up to us often after sermons and say, I don't know how you knew to preach that on this day, but that is exactly what I needed, right? And you're like, well, I knew that, right? That's why we planned it for today, just for you. No, God, God takes care of that. He loves us. He's gracious to us. So when we started this series on doubts, dilemmas, and disagreements within Christianity, Andy asked me if I would preach on how to disagree with other Christians on May 14th. And I thought, oh man, that could get, that could get a little spicy, right? Like we might offend one another. It could be a hard day. I wonder what it is. Go into my calendar, May 14th, Mother's Day, right? So I thought about entitling the sermon, How to Fight in Your Family. We could have just done that together and I could have ruined all your Mother's Days. But we're, not, we're gonna try not to do that, but we are gonna talk about what it looks like to disagree in the church as Christians. And to do that, we're gonna look at Romans 14. So get out a Bible or a phone and go to Romans 14. We're gonna read from it in just a second together. 
But let me catch you up on the context of Romans so we're not just jumping in blindly. You can really divide Romans into two parts. Chapters 1 through 11, Paul is mainly talking about our relationship with God. Namely, how does the finished work of Christ make us right with God? That's his sole goal. And then in chapters 12 through 16, he's not talking about our relationship with God. He's talking about our relationship with other people. In light of that gospel, what does it look like to live in relationship with other people? Uh, We just read in Romans 13, right? Here's how you interact as Christians um, with government authorities. And here in Romans 14, his desire and point is this. What does it look like in the church to disagree well? When we don't see eye to eye, how do we disagree with one another? So Romans 14, starting in verse one. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Let the one who observes the day observe it in honor of the Lord. Let the one who eats eat in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Skip down to verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbringing, upbuilding. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. So three questions for us this morning. What should we disagree about? How should we disagree about it? And what's at stake? What to disagree about, how to do it, What's at stake? Number one, what should we disagree about? The first thing that's implied in Romans 15 is that disagreements in the church are normal and expected. Uh, It shouldn't surprise us that just because we know Jesus and we come to be a part of a church together that we can't see eye to eye on everything. Uh, Two sinful people is all it takes to create a disagreement, right? And that that exists in the church as well. But it's not only in the church. Any relationship uh, involves disagreement. I can remember uh, when my wife and I got married, we didn't have a ton of disagreement in dating, and then you go on your honeymoon, nobody has disagreement on their honeymoon, right? And then we came back, and the very first day we were back from our honeymoon, we disagreed on how to make a grocery list. I did not know there were two ways to make a grocery list. Uh, I did not have that problem until somebody moved into my house, right? But relationships uh, create disagreement. It's just going to happen, and we shouldn't expect just because we're now a part of a church that we're going to have no disagreement. And so the question is not should we disagree. The question is what should divide us? And in the Roman church, there are really three things they're arguing about. The first one is this. What should they eat? Specifically, are they allowed to eat meat or not? And so you have some people who say you can't eat meat uh, because it might have been offered to idols or various cleanliness laws in the Old Testament. You have other people in the church who are saying you can eat anything. So look at verse two. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And all the keto people said, amen. If you're a vegetarian, this is in the Bible, right? It's uh, in every translation. Don't get angry. Uh, you got people who eat meat and think it's okay, and some people, Jewish Christians likely, who's still trying to follow Old Testament laws. The second argument was over holy days. Uh, 
So you got some people in the church who think we should have worship on Saturday, and some people in the church who think we should have worship on Sunday, some people in the church who think we should still observe the Passover, some people who are saying we shouldn't. You've got disagreement there, and then third disagreement in the church, verse 21 tells us, there's a disagreement about whether it's okay as Christians to drink alcohol or not. So they're arguing over these things. They have these disagreements, and Paul is writing them to tell them how to handle it. So look back at verse 1. He starts this way, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but here's the key phrase, but not to quarrel over opinions. That word opinions could also be translated disputable matters. So there are things that God has not directly addressed in his word. He hasn't commanded them. He hasn't forbidden them. And so we don't know them for sure, which makes it an opinion. And so Paul's main point here is not to solve these issues for them, but to show them these things you're arguing about are not worth fighting over, and they're definitely not worth dividing over. And so two things Paul's not saying, though. He's not saying there has to be uniformity in the church. The church is not a place where we all have to come into this room and agree on every issue and see eye to eye on every single thing and leave our personality and our opinions and our backgrounds and our political leanings and everything at the door and just all be uniform, right? That's not the idea. But the church is a place of unity where we might not argue over everything, where we might leave some issues to the side for the sake of unity. The second thing Paul is not saying is that there's nothing worth dividing over. We know from Paul's letters, he says, if there's false teachers in the church, get them out. If there's people in the church who are living in unrepentant sin, don't have fellowship with them. Some things are worth dividing over. And so the question is, where do we draw the lines? What's worth fighting for and what's worth potentially dividing over? Let me give you three categories. And I want you to, as I read through these, think about issues that maybe are already coming to mind, issues in our society and in our culture and in our church and about theology, all sorts of things we can disagree on, and try to figure out how can I categorize these things and draw lines appropriately. The first thing is absolutes. The first category is absolutes. These are things that are essential for salvation, core to the message of the gospel. You cannot be a Christian if you don't believe these things. So things like the deity of Christ and the bodily resurrection of Christ and faith in Christ as the lone way to be saved. Second category is convictions, things that true Christians may disagree on but still create significant boundaries. So think things like um, how we think about scripture and whether it has error. Things like baptism, things like gender and sexuality, things that uh, you could be a Christian and disagree on, but you might be a part of a different church. You might find yourself in a different tribe. And then last category, opinions. Less clear issues that are not worth dividing in any way over non-essentials, debatables, things, preferences, and opinions. I once heard it described like this. This is helpful to me. You could think about how to draw these lines like we draw national and state borders. So uh, if you've ever traveled internationally, you know it's a pretty big deal, right? Like you gotta have a passport and you gotta come prepared to answer the right questions in the right way or they take you to a room and you're never seen again, right? Like it's very serious. Border agents don't smile. You think, like if I don't do this incredibly right, this is is it, right? I'm gonna stay in this country forever. It's very serious to cross, cross the national border. State borders less so. You can drive into a different state and nobody even knows you came unless you believe in like face technology stuff. We weren't talking about that, that's tangent. Uh, You could drive into a state border with no problem, right? Nobody stops you, nobody wonders, you can cross anytime you want. So you think about the lines in Christianity that way. To cross a national border is a big deal. You're going to a new religion. To cross a state border, you realize, hey, we're still in the same country. We're still on the same team. Uh, you're just in a different denomination. You just think a little bit differently. Different states have different laws they govern by, right? Just a little bit different. Or you might be in your home state where you're under the same laws and same authority, but you disagree about preferences and opinions. And so these are just ways to draw the lines. But here's the big idea. Here's what we have to learn. Not every issue falls in the same category, right? Not every issue falls in the same category. Here's four questions to consider when you're thinking about what to disagree on and how to prioritize it. Number one, how clear is the Bible? If the Bible is clear about an issue, we go with the Bible. 
right? If the Bible is less clear on something, that tells us something about where it falls in the pecking order. Number two, is the gospel at stake? Does the gospel of Christ rise or fall on this issue? Number three, how often does it show up in scripture? What sort of weight do the biblical authors give to it? How often do they talk about it? How much do they emphasize it? And then lastly, how has the church thought about it throughout history? This is probably one we lean on the least, right? But if in the history of Christianity, an issue has been an absolute, not an agree to disagree issue, it's probably not agree to disagree for us, right? And so we can look at church history. It's just four ways to decide where things can be categorized. Two ways we can go wrong. Two ways we can go wrong, liberalism and legalism. Liberalism is where we treat absolutes like opinions. We fight for nothing, right? Like there are core issues in Christianity, but we just say, don't worry about it. It's not worth disagreeing about. Or legalism. We treat opinions like absolutes and we fight over everything. Now you can think about this in your own head. You don't have to answer out loud unless you want to, and that would be fine. Where do you think Mitchell Road falls generally on, in this? Which side do we usually fall off on? I would guess legalism. That for us, our issue is we have too many opinions that we bring up the food chain, as it were, and put in categories of absolutes that everyone has to believe and see eye to eye with us on these things. And here's the problem. The, the longer we go on in life, the older we get, the more we learn. Generally, we don't like our opinions less, right? We like our opinions more. We get more dug in, more dogmatic, more convinced. And so all of a sudden our opinions start climbing and we start to maybe even um, unintentionally treat them like absolutes. But here's just what I wanna say lastly on this point and then we'll move on. Spiritual maturity is not just developing strong beliefs. It's learning how to show restraint and the weight you give to those beliefs. It's learning to go, is this an absolute? that I'm willing to, to literally die for? Is this a conviction that we agree to disagree on, but we might be in different places? Or is this an opinion that I can totally let go? Number two, how should we disagree? How should we disagree? So the first step is to draw the right lines. Now the question is, when we disagree, how should we do it? Let me just give you a couple of things that Romans 14 teaches us about disagreeing in the church. Number one, when we disagree, we treat each other as people in process versus people who are finished products. As people in process versus people who are finished products. And so the church has divided into these two groups that Paul calls the weak and the strong. The weak are the ones who think you can't eat the meat, you can't drink the alcohol, you have to celebrate the holy days. Here's what's interesting about that. If you met the weak person, you would probably think they were the strong one because they look the most committed to Jesus. They look the most serious about their faith. They're following the rules, obeying. They're going above and beyond, right? But ultimately, Paul says they're weak in their faith because deep in their hearts, they're convinced at some level that they still have to earn God's favor by what they do. That it has to surely take some of their obedience to keep God's love for them. So Paul says they're weak. They haven't fully grasped the gospel yet. They haven't fully worked it into their lives. But here's what's fascinating. You would expect, because Paul's taking a side here, right? One is weak, one is strong. But he doesn't talk about, the rest of the chapter, he doesn't go, all right, so weak people, pull it together, right? Figure this out. No, he, he spends the rest of the chapter saying, Hey, weak and strong people, learn to disagree and love each other in the midst of this disagreement because we're all people in process. None of us are finished products. He says we're all welcomed into God's family, but we're adopted from different places, right? We have different family upbringings and different histories and different things we carry into the church. And so Paul says to the weak people, hey, don't judge the strong when they're taking their freedom in Christ like a little too far, right up to the line, right? And he says to the strong people, don't judge the weak who are just trying to figure this out. We're all in process. And here's what I wanna to say to us to challenge us as a church. Can we just be a place 
that lives like this, that when people enter, they don't think, I have to have everything together. I have to know the answers. I have to have my theology buttoned up. I have to look like them and agree with them and think like they think. Instead, we say to people who come in, hey, we're all in process. None of us are finished products. Let's learn to follow Christ together. Don't we wanna be a church like that? Where people feel welcomed, And they know that if we disagree on opinions, they still belong here because Christ has welcomed them. And so we welcome them with open arms. I hope that you feel like that if you're new here, especially. I ran across some uh, fascinating statistics from Barna this week. They just finished some research. Um, They did poll questions in 2015 and then the same poll questions in 2022. So seven years passed, but a lot happened in those seven years, right? And let me just give you two statements they polled people on, and they asked, how, um, how strongly would you agree with this statement? Statement number one, my ideas are usually better than other people's ideas. So 20% more people agree with that statement in 2022 than they did in 2015. Okay, second one. When I'm really confident in a belief, there is very little chance that belief is wrong. more of us think that in 2022 than we did in 2015. 70% of us think, when I have a belief, it's right, right? I mean, we just cannot believe the gospel and believe that we're works in progress and take on that kind of mentality. We just can't. We'll never learn to live with one another and love one another if we don't realize everybody in here, no matter if we see eye to eye or not, has something to teach me. And I might change my mind because I'm learning and growing. I had lunch with a a kid who was in my youth group seven or eight years ago, uh, a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about something and he said, hey, you know, when when I was in high school, I actually didn't believe or agree with everything that you told me. And you know what I thought? I don't even agree with everything I told you when you were in high school. (laughs) Because I've changed, I've grown, I've matured. You know, it's pretty interesting. If you think about yourself 10 years ago, it will get pretty embarrassing if you'll actually give some thought to it. Uh, especially if you have social media and you go back and read your social media from 10 years ago, that's a, a exercise in humility. Because you'll say, oh, I, why did I say it like that? Why did I care so much about that? Why did I believe that? Why did I force that? Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think you'll be saying 10 years from now? Probably the same, right? because we're people in process. We're growing together. We're learning together. And so we learn to be a church like that. Second thing we learn from this passage, learn to be slow to speak and sometimes don't speak at all. Learn to be slow to speak and sometimes don't speak at all. Look at what Paul says in verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks that it's unclean. So it takes all the way to verse 14, and then Paul says, finally, here's my opinion. And then guess what? He doesn't mention it again. He doesn't feel the need to force his opinion down everyone's throat. He's more concerned about unity in the church than he is about being right. And so maybe here's what we need to learn. We need to learn that sometimes silence really is golden, right? that sometimes being slow to speak really is a virtue and we don't have to offer our opinion about every single issue for the sake of Christ and the church. We can be slow to speak and sometimes not speak at all. Number three, we welcome whoever God has welcomed. Chapter 14 actually continues into chapter 15 and Paul ends this section on disagreements in the church with this verse. He says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Those last four words, Christ has welcomed you, that's actually a, a summary of the gospel and a pretty good one. Because you know what we actually believe deep down? Christ tolerates us, but when he talks about us behind our back, he rolls his eyes a little bit, right? 
But this word welcome actually means to take to oneself, to pull as closely as possible. The gospel is not that Jesus is willing to be in the same vicinity as you and you should count yourself lucky. The gospel is that Jesus has grabbed you, the mess that you are, and pulled you as close to himself as he possibly can and he'll never let you go. And so we have to learn to be a church that welcomes one another as Christ has welcomed us. But it's hard in a big church. Here's why. When we disagree with other people, we're not gonna shout them down in the hallway. We're not gonna hate them, but here's what we might do. We might just keep our distance a little bit. We might just talk a little bit behind their back. We might just make sure we don't end up in the same community group. But brothers and sisters, if we're gonna take the gospel seriously and Christ has welcomed us and calls us to welcome each other, there's no room for that in the church. We have to pull one another close. And that's what make the, makes the gospel look beautiful. Lastly, last point, what's at stake? What's at stake? It's no secret that our culture is losing the ability to disagree well. Um, in, in our culture, increasingly what we see is when we disagree, the way you do it and, and the way that it goes well is when you own the other person, right? You villainize them, you marginalize them, you dismiss them, you totally crush them. That's how you win a disagreement. Um, most historians say our country right now is the most divided it's ever been since the Civil War. And uh, you may hear that and get discouraged. But let me offer it to you from a different perspective, not as a source of discouragement, for a, but for a source of encouragement. Because how brightly can the light of the gospel shine in a culture like ours if we can just learn to disagree with one another well and not absolutely crush each other or villainize one another, but value each other? Uh, we have a great opportunity there's a great example of this from church history. There's a names you might know, George Whitfield and uh, Charles West, John Wesley, uh, were two 18th century revivalist preachers. They were celebrity pastors before there were celebrity pastors. Tens of thousands of people would come to hear their sermons. And they were good friends, but they had big disagreements over theology, namely uh, over predestination and over sanctification, two pretty big issues. And all the people that followed them, they had their little tribes, right? And all the people that followed them would say, come on, George, just go crush him, right? Like write the letter or preach the sermon and just absolutely dominate him. Our position can win, we'll come out victorious. But they refused to do it. Listen to what George Whitfield wrote to John Wesley. The doctrine of election and the final perseverance of those who are truly in Christ, I am 10,000 times more convinced of, if possible, than when I saw you last. You think otherwise. Why then should we dispute when there is no probability of convincing? Will it not, in the end, destroy brotherly love and insensibly take from us the cordial union and sweetness of the soul, which I pray God may always subsist between us? How glad would the enemies of the Lord be to see us divided? How many would rejoice should I join and make a party against you? And in one word, how would the cause of our common master in every way suffer by our raging disputes about particular points of doctrines? Honored sir, let us offer salvation freely to all by the blood of Jesus. And whatever light God has communicated to us, let us freely communicate it to others. I mean, isn't that just like water for your soul? that we can disagree on even major issues in such a way that the world looks and goes, that's different. These two men stayed so close that um, George Whitfield asked John Wesley to preach his funeral. And the day before his funeral, one of Wesley's followers and came, came to him and said, hey, I'm scared to ask this because I don't know what, wanna know what the answer is, but do you think George Whitfield is in heaven? And here's how he responded. George Wesley, or John Wesley replied with great seriousness, no, madam. His inquirer at once exclaimed, I was afraid you would say that. To which John Wesley added with intense earnestness, don't misunderstand me, madam. George Whitfield was so bright a star in the firmament of God's glory and will stand so near the throne that somebody like me, who am the least of the least, will never catch a glimpse of him. This gospel disagreement 
And it's what we have an opportunity to do in a fractured and divided world who's lost the ability to disagree. They can look at the church and if they see us just as fractured and just as disagreeable and, and just as bad at arguing and disputing about things, what reason do they have to believe the gospel? It makes no practical difference in real life. But we also have the opportunity to look very different. Look, it's not um, very hard right now. Can we just be honest? Uh, there was a time in the church, I grew up a little bit in this, where you had to have a master's you know, class in evangelism and memorize all the good apologetic answer to be ready when you got in a disagreement. That's how you prove your faith to the world, right? You know how we show uh, that the gospel is true to the world now? Just don't yell at everybody all the time. Just don't be a jerk and so angry and just try to crush people and villainize them when they disagree with you. You just do those very simple things that we teach like four-year-olds and the world's gonna look and go, that's different. Those people stand out because we can disagree well. One quote from D.A. Carson will be done. He says, ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. And in the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love each other. In this light, they're a natural, they're of this band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. You know, Jesus said to us, they will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love each other. And I think maybe the greatest test of that in our current culture is by the way that we can disagree. Because the gospel is gonna shine beautifully in a fractured world if we can love each other, even when we don't see eye to eye for Jesus' sake. And so, Father, we want to be people who disagree well. We wanna be a, a church that welcomes people because Christ, you have welcomed us. A church that knows we're all works in progress and so we're figuring it out together. And Jesus, you told us that the Spirit will lead us into all truth. And so we can't wait to grow up together, to learn together, to disagree when necessary, and in all the while become more like Christ, our great head who leads us and guides us. And so, Jesus, thank you for welcoming us. We pray we be people who welcome each other for your glory, we pray. Amen. Thank you.